We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we will probably break a few times during Lent because we want to uh, talk a little bit about Lent and what that means as well. Um, but I would like to keep the continuity going. Uh, we're getting down to the end of it. Um, we're we're still in chapter seven, which is the third chapter. But um, the Sermon on the Mount is such an important passage. To me, it's the central part of the of the Gospels. If we had to lose everything else, but we kept Matthew five, six, and seven, we'd be doing okay, because it's all really there. And even if we had to lose Matthew five, six, and seven, as long as we kept the Lord's Prayer we'd be okay. It's all there as well. But we have to understand how to read it. To read it from a Hebrew Aramaic point of view changes things. And that's what we've been doing for 15 years here at The Effect. And that's what we've been doing in this study on the sermon. Um, But it does change things. Everything that Jesus is talking about in the sermon is trying to get kingdom across to us. Kingdom is the arch metaphor, the meta metaphor that he uses to hang all of his teaching. Everything is geared toward kingdom. And if we don't understand kingdom, then we're going to misunderstand everything that Jesus is telling us. Kingdom is not heaven of the next life. Kingdom is here and now. It's a quality of life. It's a quality of presence that allows us to perceive the connectedness of all things, to be able to see how we all fit. And to live our lives, as we were saying before, without fear. Even though when you know we're walking around with a death sentence, we need not fear because of this presence that imbues and fills us. But if we're not aware of the presence, if we're living separated from that, then life is experienced very differently. So this is what he's talking about. Kingdom is a way of living in the freedom of presence. The freedom that happens when we can let go of everything that is keeping us fearful. And this really is what Hebrew salvation means. Salvation to the Jews is not about getting into heaven and avoiding hell in the next life. Hebrew salvation is spiritual liberation right here and right now. Kingdom is the quality of life that you have once you're saved from that point of view. But it's right here and it's right now. And so these three chapters, this Sermon on the Mount, which was an early catechism of the church that was compiled by the writer of Matthew in this particular format, and it has a form, it has a flow to it. In Matthew 5, remember we talked about the beginning, he first gives us a picture of the finished product. What does a person who's living in kingdom look like? That's the Beatitudes. And he's painting the picture of an anavim, the person who's living in humility, in vulnerability, in dependence, but joyfully, because they have learned to rely solely on God, the one support that can never be taken from us. And so the picture of the finished product then moves into what effect does that have on the person? What effect does that person then have on the community around him or her? How does that work? What does that look like? He moves then into redefining law, trying to get us to see the basics of what we think our life is built on from a completely different point of view, completely different vantage. And so he redefines the law for these people who lived under the law and lived under the pharisaical interpretation of the law, which was so severe, so legalistic, so performance-based. And as he's reworking that, he ends up saying, we need to love the enemy. Here is this completely mind-blowing exhortation to love the enemy, love the one that we don't get, love the one who is 
in opposition to us and move to a place of perfection. And importantly, perfection, not that we are perfect in any way, but that we can have perfect moments, perfectly connected to the moment. And then Matthew 6, he goes on to then redefine righteousness that the Jews understand as a giving of alms and prayer and fasting, those three kind of measuring rods for their righteousness. But he redefines all those. He puts them back in terms of interior heart condition, just as he did with the law. And for there, he talks about building up treasures in heaven as opposed to earth to try to get us to realign ourselves As Richard Rohr would say, instead of looking at the first half of life, which is materially based, and looking at the the way that we build our platform in life, to then focus in, make the transition to the second half of life, where the treasures are internal, and again, cannot be taken from us there. Moths can't eat them away. Thieves can't steal them if our treasures are in heaven. In that place of unity and connection, right here on earth, not heaven of the next life. we got to disabuse ourselves of that notion. Heaven is here when we are in that place and that quality and that state of connection. And then from there he talks about not worrying anymore, moving from worry to trust, which is only possible when we have this sense of connection. We have something in our back pocket that we cannot lose, which of course is God's love. Now, those two chapters are really the teaching that's the teaching part, right? That's where Jesus is trying to show us the door. Here's the door. Here is this new way of living, this new way of even conceiving of life and relationship and love. Now he's going to move in chapter 7 into the practicum. How do we actually do this? What are the steps? What are the concrete things that we can do that can get us into that state, make us look like the Beatitudes are describing? And so in chapter 7, he's putting it all together. How do we do it? How, what are the steps that we can take toward becoming this person who is walking in kingdom? And what are the assurances that we have that it's going to be okay along this risky way? Because it's going to feel risky at the beginning. You're going against every instinct and every experience you've had in life. So what are the assurances that we have that we can take these steps? And then what are the difficulties? What are the things and the barriers that we're going to come against? Why is it so hard? And then finally, he's going to give us the evidence of progress along the way. Now, you may not have ever thought of Matthew 7 that way, but we're going to try to see if you can by the end of what we're talking about here. This is Jesus putting it all together. This is the practicum. Now, we've started Matthew 7 a couple of weeks ago, and we've been talking about how the first six verses of Matthew 7 all act together as a unit. And we've been breaking them apart because we didn't have enough time in any one Sunday to talk about it all, but we keep going back over them so we make sure that we're understanding they're working together as a unit to look again at life as a whole from a different angle. Jesus is beginning to show us how to walk this way of kingdom, this quality of life. So last week we talked about the biggest impediment to kingdom is judgment. But we have to understand what judgment means. It's just not about condemning others in a morally reprehensible way. We're doing something bad. God doesn't like it, and so God is going to keep us out of kingdom. That's another thing we've got to really get away from. You cannot obey your way into kingdom. It requires a complete transformation from inside to outside. So judgment is antithetical to kingdom because it requires us to reach an opinion or a conclusion about a person, place, or thing 
based on a standard that we already have preset in our minds, a mindset that we have, a bias we have, the law that we have learned, the way that we grew up in our family home taught us that this is the way life works. And we judge everything against that. We compare everything against that. And as soon as you've done that, you've objectified whatever it is that you're sharing your moment with. You've separated yourself and you've objectified yourself. That's the opposite of kingdom. Kingdom is the connection. Kingdom is the oneness. And as soon as we have separated and see ourselves as a separate entity in competition with everything and everyone else, and the fear is back in. The obsessive-compulsive drives are back in. Before you know it, know it, you're invading Ukraine because that's what people do when they are driven by this kind of fear and paranoia. Whether it's on the huge and the world scale or whether it's just in your own home, the dynamics are really pretty much the same. This is what we need to do, is to be able to follow Jesus into this new space, to understand that judgment is the beginning of it all, to separate ourselves against a standard that is in our minds. Kingdom is just the opposite of that. It's the immersion in the moment, immersion in relationship with the other in our moments. Now, we still need to make choices in life, right? And the choices, though, aren't based on judgments as we just define them, but they're based on discernment. Discernment is different. Discernment is an opinion or a conclusion that you reach based on experience, not on a preset standard. When you've lived with someone long enough, you know, you just sort of know, okay, I can trust him or her here, but maybe not so much over here. They're going to always pay their rent on time, but they're not going to cut the grass in the backyard. Okay, I know that about them. Now, I didn't judge them that way. Oh, you're the kind of person who never cuts the grass in the backyard. That's a judgment. But once I've lived with you for a while, I can say, hey, you never cut the grass in the backyard. That's a discernment. But what had to happen before I could make that discernment? I had to live with a person. I had to be in relationship. I had to hang my toothbrush right next to theirs. That's totally different. Discernment is what we must do. Discernment only comes from living immersed in moments and relationship. That's where we want to go. Discernment is the perception or the recognition of the experience of the truth of something. But it connects us. It does not separate us. And it makes all the difference in the world. And it's how we choose in kingdom. And we have to remember, kingdom doesn't mean it's perfect here. If you are living in kingdom, it doesn't mean your circumstances are perfect. It doesn't mean your situation is perfect. It doesn't mean your relationships are perfect. What it means is that you can still be perfectly connected to the imperfection in your moments and in your relationships. That that doesn't chase you away. That doesn't separate you out in judgment. You are still willing to be vulnerable, open, to be hurtable, of course, but connected. And yes, we still have to make choices. How do we do that? You know, there was a great scene in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, right at the beginning, where uh, T.E. Lawrence is, is doing this thing with a match. He lights a match, and then he just kind of goes up the stem of the match and then snuffs it out with his fingers. And, you know, one of the soldiers who's watching him says, how did you do that? Let me try. And he, he does not oh, that bloody well hurts, he says. Oh, he says, of course it hurts. Well, then what's the trick? He says, the trick is not minding that it hurts. See, when we're living in kingdom, the trick is not minding that it's imperfect. 
We're not offendable in that way. We're not afraid to engage with imperfect people in imperfect situations. We bring our perfect presence to that imperfection, and that changes everything. To move into presence, to move into awareness. Now, Jesus is showing us the progress of this way in the kingdom. At the beginning, take a look. Um, John will put it up on the screen. Hopefully, John will put it up on the screen. Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, or it's in your handouts if you've got those from the... uh, the uh, little things on your chairs there. So Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by their standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So what is Jesus? This is going to be a progression. Matthew 1 and 2, 7, 1 and 2, then 3, then 4, then 5, then 6. Each one is taking us. It's a step along the journey. Now this first one is simply stop judging. He says it right out, flat out. Stop judging. Because why? Because we talked about this. The reality that we believe, the reality we believe is the reality we endure. We don't see reality directly. We see it through the filter of our judgments. That preset mindset, worldview, those standards that we carry around with us, most of which are unconscious and we don't even know are in operation. That is the reality that we live. We live that hell if that's what it is. Or we live that heaven if that's what it is. But the reality we believe is the reality we endure. So Jesus says, be willing to let go of your standards. Be be willing to let go of everything that you think you know so that you can actually see what's right in front of you. You can actually be present to what is and not just stuck inside your own head. Most of us walk around stuck inside our own heads. We don't see anything outside that bubble anymore. We're just looking at the back of our eyelids, if you want to use that image. Really? Jesus says, stop that. Now, obviously, it's not that easy. It's a process. But the first step is becoming aware that you even have a process. You even have a judgment. You even have a standard. And so that is Matthew 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? He's telling us to build awareness. That's the next step. Stop judging then start to build your own awareness. Start to begin that interior work of understanding what standards you're really living by. Not even the ones that you say you're living by. Good Christians say, we're living by love. But underneath in the subconscious, it's anything but that. And they're not even aware of the discrepancy. They're not even aware of what's really driving them. Build the awareness to start to see. That is a process of doing the interior work. Are you going to do it by seeing a psychoanalyst? Okay, fine. Are you going to do it by starting contemplative practice? Fine. Are you going to do it by any other means? It really doesn't matter. Bring the tools to bear that you need to, but be willing to get down into the muck, all of that dirty stuff that nobody really wants to acknowledge, and it's not going to be pretty, and it's not going to be fun. This is why later in chapter 7, Jesus says the way to life is narrow, and the gate is constricted, and few go by this way, because few want to do this work. Few want to go through the pain of having to revisit all this stuff or deal with it for the first time, but building awareness is the key. Verse 4 Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log, the beam, is in your own eye. Realize our humility. And the best definition of humility is just clearly seeing our relationship to each other and to God and to life. No more, no less. 
It's not about being humiliated. It's not about keeping ourselves down to a lower standard. It's just seeing what is. We're all together here. We're all different, but we're all equal. And we're more same as human beings than we would like to admit. Recognize that. That's true humility. See the true nature of our relationships with each other and with God. In other words, let me take the speck out of your eye when I've got this in my eye. If I start to get that awareness, if I start to realize the nature of the relationships, I can see that discrepancy and I can start to act accordingly. In verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, obvious, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he's talking about here is integrating ourselves. We need to be the same both interiorly and exteriorly. What we say and what we do matches up. What we think, that interior committee that we often talk about, you know, that voices and those voices that are constantly talking to us, they are mirroring what the external committee is also saying. Everything becomes integrated at this point. To be able to see clearly, to have unity inside and out. John 3.16, you know, the famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life and not perish. That famous verse really, if we take a look at it from an Aramaic point of view, changes for us. The only begotten Son, only begotten. The word there in Aramaic translated as only begotten is ihidaya. And what ihidaya really means is single or solitary, which is where we get only begotten from. But it also means united in all aspects of being. And this is really what's going on here. Jesus is not the only begotten son in the way we normally think of that. Jesus is literally the son of unity. Jesus is unity's son. He is this perfectly integrated man, the personification of presence here on earth. If we were to really translate the first part of John 3.16 from an Aramaic point of view, we could say that God, that unity, loved the world such that he gave his full presence to us in human form. Everything that God is, his full presence, is present in the Son of unity, in the Ichidaya. See how that works? That is the model for us. This full integration, that everything is connected. Everything is one thing. Because once that beam, once that blockage to our vision, to our way of thinking and seeing and perceiving is out of our eyes, then we can wake up in the moment and really see what's going on. You all know what a lucid dream is? A lucid dream is where you wake up in the dream and you realize you're dreaming, but you don't wake up so much that you leave the dream completely. So you're still dreaming, but now you know you're dreaming. And once you know you're dreaming in your dream, you can choose whatever you want to do. It's amazing. I spent several years learning how to do this because I thought it was so cool. You know, that and a quarter will get you not even a cup of coffee today. I think you need five bucks to get a cup of coffee today. But it is quite amazing, you know, that your mind doesn't know the difference between the waking state and the dream state. It's just as real. And so you have to go through some training 
to get to the point where you can recognize that you're in a dream. And then once you are, you can choose to do whatever you want to do. You can go flying Superman style. You can turn back time. It's amazing the things that you can do in your dream. But the analogy here is if we can wake up inside our waking moments, we realize that we can choose something different that our programming is slavishly creating in us over and over and over, wondering why it is we keep doing the same things and getting the same results over and over. Paul, what a wretched man I am, right? The things I want to do, I don't. You know, he's talking about that unconscious drive to wake up in the moment like a lucid dreamer is to realize I can make a different choice. Amazing. I have an ability to choose. And what I can choose is to see the true self, my true self, as opposed to the ego limitations that we normally live by and under. We can break through that. We can see ourselves connected to each other. We can see how everything connects and everything belongs. And we can really see the other person. And we can see their needs. And we can be appropriate and relevant and actually helpful but only if we're present first. And in order to do that, we need to wake up. To be present is to have that clear eye that Jesus talked about previously in the sermon. To be the same inside and out, ihidaya, integrated, transparent, connected, present in the moment. All right, this all sounds great, but then what? What do we do next? What happens next? Well, let's take a look at verse 6. Jesus is changing metaphors, changing images here. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Famous line, right? Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. Sounds pretty harsh to me. Sounds pretty condescending to me. It sounds pretty judgmental to me. Sound that way to you? Okay, I got a couple of people, heads going up and down, you know. And let's let's be let's be um, truthful with this. It's been used as an exclusionary verse. It's been used to exclude people from the faith or who are, are not comporting themselves according to our faith, according to the doctrines of the church. This has been used to exclude them. But you know that this is Jesus talking. It can't possibly mean that. I don't care what it sounds like it says. We know who said it. Stick with the person, because ultimately truth is a person. Stick with the person, and then we can interpret from that point of view. And if we get underneath the Aramaic hood a little bit, then we can begin to understand more what Jesus is talking about. Let's first look at the images, the dogs he's talking about, kalba in Aramaic. First of all, a dog is an unclean animal. You know that there are clean animals and unclean animals. The clean animals you can eat and use for sacrifices in the temple, and the other ones you can't touch. You know, in terms of quadrupeds, they had to have an uncloven hoof. They had to chew their cud. Dogs don't do that, right? So dogs are an unclean animal. Now, in first century Judea, these weren't their pets. They weren't cute little, um, like, like this guy over here, this girl over here, who is sleeping so peacefully on the, on the floor there. No, they didn't have them as pets. These are wild and feral animals, and they infested eastern cities. Think coyotes here, okay? You know, the coyotes are ones that we have to keep our dogs away from, and they are, you know, just all over the place, it seems like, lately. 
and they're dangerous, and we have to worry about them. This is be the image that Jesus is conjuring up when he uses this word kalba. And they're pack animals. They're scavenging constantly. And they're dangerous and easily provoked to an attack. So these aren't your cute little pets. To a Jew, they were a symbol of savagery. They were a symbol of a, a snarling and quarrelsome personality. They were abusers. They were maligners. If you called someone a dog, that's, and those were fighting words, basically, because you were saying all that about that person's character. That is the imagery that Jesus is calling up. Now, in terms of swine, which are pigs, of course, I think we all know that pigs are unclean animals. Um, they're not kosher. You can't eat them. Hezira, in the, in the Aramaic language, again, unclean. They were not raised by Jews. Jews didn't raise pigs. They wouldn't touch them. If you touched a pig, you were ceremonially unclean. And so they were raised by Gentiles, and they were about half tame in the Levant, in the what we now call Palestine, but Judea and Galilee and this area that we're talking about. And the world, the, the Levant, the Middle East there, 2,000 years ago was much wetter than it is today. We don't realize that. It was almost like a rainforest along the Jordan River Valley. You know, heavily forested, very wet, very water, and wild boars roamed the, the Jordan Valley, and they were dangerous again, and you had to really watch them. To a Jew... The pig, the swine, were a symbol of coarseness, impurity, and a gross nature. And the thing to mostly understand and come away with is both dogs and pigs were, were repulsive to Jews in the first century. So now as we start to put this together, first of all, understand, Jesus. this saying is not original with Jesus. This was a common Jewish saying, a proverb that was circulating for generations before. Jesus appropriates it and puts it in here because it so captures what he's trying to say. Not only that, this is another example of Jewish poetry. Jewish poetry uses parallelism. It doesn't use rhyme and meter and, and other types of, of, of devices to hold the stanzas together the way English poetry does. It uses the repetition of ideas and concepts and builds on those and does them in slightly different ways to, to build on the meaning. And so this is actually a poem. It doesn't look like that the way it's printed here, but there are four lines there. And if you were to take those four lines and put them in a quatrain, you know, just a four-line poem, what you'd find that this is actually what <laughs> people in literature call introverted parallelism. I didn't know that you... You probably didn't know that a parallel could be introverted, but it can. The way that it's introverted is, is that if it's introverted parallelism, and we have four lines, then the first line is going to connect with the fourth line. The first line connects with the last line. The second line connects with the third line. If it were six, then it would be the first line connecting with the last line, the second line connecting with the second to the last, and the third connecting with the fourth. But introverted because it's turned kind of inside out. It's, it's forcing the look within. It's an interior meaning that we're finding. So it's kind of a chiasmus. There's another word for it. That's why this seems to be out of order. Jesus first says, don't give what is holy to dogs. Then he starts talking about pigs. Don't throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It seems all out of order, doesn't it? But now using the parallelism, introverted parallelism, we realize what the completed lines are. Don't give what is holy to dogs. They will turn and tear you to pieces. 
don't throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under your feet. So that's the way that the, the thoughts go together. But it builds through this quatrain. So now we've got to figure out what is this holy thing, first of all, this sacred thing that we're not supposed to give to the dogs. And there is a controversy here between... It's an egghead controversy, but it's a controversy, you know, a little bit of a debate. We've talked about that the Aramaic, Aramaic and Hebrew languages only have consonants. They don't have vowels. And so this word here that is translated here in the NIV as holy, don't give what is holy to dogs, is three letters, R-Q-R-D-R-S-H, which would be kuf, dalit, shin in Aramaic and in Hebrew. But the vowels aren't there. So it was translated as the word kudsht, okay? That is holy. But there's another word that shares the same root, kadasha, which means ring. And so the question is, is it holy or is it ring? The kudsha, first of all, is either a sacred thing or more appropriately, it's ceremonially prepared meat that was prepared for sacrifice on the altar. First of all, clean, and then prepared in exactly the right way so that it was ceremony. In other words, it was holy. It was set apart for a certain purpose. And so there's that. Then kadasha means a ring or an earring, but it also was a symbol for the Torah itself because Israel was understood as the bride of Yahweh, and Torah was the wedding ring that bound Israel to God. And so it can mean ring or it can mean the holy thing. So there is an old saying at this time also, don't hang earrings on a dog. All right, you can kind of get where that one's going from. So it can mean something like that, of course, or it can actually mean the ring or the Torah. And the basic idea here is don't argue with a person, don't debate a person, don't push Torah or Torah law on someone who's opposed to it, someone who's antagonistic toward it, because what are they going to do? They're going to attack you back. They're going to turn and tear you to pieces. It's not going to go well. If you're just doing this from a judgmental point of view, then you're going to fly in with your, with your Torah, with your law, and you're going to blanket coverage everyone around you with it. But if you're going to be approaching this from a discerning point of view, then first of all, you're going to know who it is you're talking to. You're going to have immersed yourself in a relationship with that person long enough to know they aren't going to take kindly to this. I can have relationship with them on other levels, but it's not this one right now. See how this is working? Pearls. What are pearls all about? Well, pearls were the Jewish symbol of the teaching or the wisdom that you glean from Torah, that you glean from the law. It's the wisdom that comes from all of this. So basically, what is he saying? Don't throw your wisdom, don't throw what you have gleaned from Torah to someone who's unprepared to be able to comprehend. At this time, there were what the Jews called seed pearls. They were little tiny pearls about the size of peas or the kernels of maize corn that was used as feed for the swine. So if you took your pearls, your little seed pearls, and you cast them before the pigs, they would look at them first and think that they were their feed. But as soon as they realize they weren't edible, they just trample over them and go on. That's the imagery that's kind of being called up here. Don't throw your pearls before someone who's not ready for them. What are they going to do with them? They can't eat them. They can't deal with them. All they can do is ignore them at this point. 
Now, if pearls are the wisdom of Torah, then it probably is pushing us to say that the real word that was meant was Kadasha, the ring of the Torah, because now we have the symmetry again. Don't try to give Torah law to someone who's unprepared for it because they'll turn and tear it to pieces. And don't try to give the wisdom that you have gleaned from Torah to someone who is not ready to comprehend it because all they can do is trample it underfoot and move on. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. It's not condescending. It's not exclusionary at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's about discernment. It's about being present enough to a person to be able to see who they are and what they really need. They don't need a Bible study. They just need an arm around their shoulders. Can we deliver that first before we try to bring them into where we think that they should be? Meet them where they are, in, in others' words. See their needs. Not judging according to a mindset. Not a 30,000-foot airdrop of leaflets, you know. Not a one-size-fits-all type of, of approach. But really trying to understand who it is you're dealing with. Years ago, when I was still working with a nonprofit in Mexico, uh, we, we took a whole bunch of food and, and supplies down, and a pastor came with us. And that pastor... <laughs> sat down with all the women who were the ones who get up every morning at, at 4 and 5 o'clock and, and prepare the meals and, and feed the kids and take care of the kids of the neighborhood. And he sat them down and led them all through the sinner's prayer. He didn't know them from Adam. He didn't even speak their language. Now, they understood English well enough to know what he was doing. And they came to me later, and they were highly insulted. Now, they were polite enough not to say anything. They just sat there and, and did what he asked them to do. He didn't know that they were devout Catholics. He didn't know that they were devout Protestants or whatever church they went to. He didn't know that part of the reason that they got up and they fed these kids was their enactment of gospel in the first place. He had no idea who he was talking to. He just assumed that he needed to save their souls and led them through the sinner's prayer and broke down relationship in the process. This is the difference here. He judged them according to a standard and acted accordingly. Rather than just taking time and asking questions, having conversation, getting to know who they were, and see that these beautiful people had nothing that they needed from us in that regard. They needed food. They needed clothing. They needed the resources to be able to care for the kids in their neighborhood. But they were prepared to be able to do that. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Judging reduces people to stereotypes. We don't see them at all. We only see the inside of our eyelids, and it's insulting. We want to be able to see the person, and we can't see them if we're only using our standards as judgment. But once we stop judging without judgment, without being stuck inside our own heads, the reality that we believe, then we are free to discern, to really immerse in relationship, to perceive and to recognize the other person as they are, as our moments are, and to see the needs that are present in our moments and then be appropriate. The pearls and rings that Jesus is talking about is about discernment, about the experience of truth all around us. Now, what does that look like? 
What does it look like to actually get to a place where you're starting to live this thing? Someone sent me an email, and I, I did send it out to some of you, so this may be a repeat. And it is printed in the inserts if you want to follow along or take it with you afterwards. But this is a man who is between 70 and 80 years old. And a friend of his said, what have you learned now that you're this old? <laughs> You've gotten this old. Is there anything that you've learned? Is there anything that, that changes your perspective? And this is what he said, 14 points. He said, after loving my parents, my siblings, my spouse, my children, and my friends, I have now started loving myself. Two. I have realized that I'm not Atlas. The world does not rest on my shoulders. Gotta love that. I have stopped bargaining with vegetable and fruit vendors. <laughs> A few pennies is not going to break me, but it might help the poor fellow save for his daughter's school fees. Connection? Discernment? Huh? I leave my waitress a big tip. The extra money might bring a smile to her face. She is toiling much harder for a living than I am. I stop telling the elderly that they've already told me that story many times. The story makes them walk down memory lane and relive their past. Ah, grace, huh? Graciousness. I have learned not to correct people even when I know they're wrong. The onus of making everyone perfect is not on me. Remember we talked about who can we really change? Nobody but ourselves. Peace is more precious than perfection. Put that one on your fridge. Peace is more precious than perfection. I give compliments freely and generously. Compliments are a mood enhancer, not only for the recipient, but also for me. And a small tip for the recipient of a compliment, never, never turn it down. Just say thank you. How hard is that for most of us, just to say thank you? you know? I have learned not to bother about a crease or a spot on my shirt. Personality speaks louder than appearances. I think a lot of us are okay with that anyway. I walk away from people who don't value me. They may not know my worth, but I do. Sense of value, sense of identity growing in him. I remain cool when someone plays dirty to outrun me in the rat race. I'm not a rat, and neither am I in any race. Unoffendability, we've talked about that. I am learning not to be embarrassed by my emotions. It's my emotions that make me human. I've learned it's better to drop the ego than to break a relationship. My ego will keep me aloof, whereas with relationships, I will never be alone. Judgment, discernment. Same thing, right? I have learned to live each day as if it's the last. After all, it might well be the last. And I'm doing what makes me happy. I'm responsible for my happiness. I owe it to myself. Happiness is a choice. You can be happy at any time. Just choose to be. This is the freedom of age, right? You get to a certain point and you just realize you can't hold back the ocean with a broom any longer. Just let it go. And this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Age can do that for us. Give us the freedom to just be. You know, not to have to prove anything anymore. Just let go and just be gracious. 
Age can do that for us because age strips us eventually of all those ego illusions that we have. We can't hold on to them. The mirror is telling us something very different than what we may be carrying around in our head and you can't avoid it, can you, at a certain point? That reality that we believe just can't be hung on to any longer. And so age can strip us of all of that naturally unless we are fighting it tooth and nail every step of the way and holding on to our illusions, which sadly we see people doing well past the age that they should know better. But here's the key. We don't have to wait for age to do that to us, to do that for us, to take our illusions away. We can begin to work, do that interior work, as soon as we're ready to begin to strip off the tyranny of our own ego limitations, to strip off what we think it is that we know that creates the reality that we endure and keeps us separated from, aloof from everyone around us. And even our moments, the experience of our moments, we're not even there. And once we become free of that ego mind, then we can become free of the worry, the stress, and the tyranny of our own needs that drives us in obsessive, compulsive way. You see how all this fits together in Jesus' teaching? This is what kingdom is, the freedom from all of that that keeps us running, that keeps us damaging relationships. We can then see the connection of all things. And more importantly, we can see that everyone is worthy of connection, including ourselves. Already worthy of connection. Nothing we need to do or perform or prove in order to be worthy. We're worthy now. Since the moment we took our first breath and before that, we've always been worthy in God's eyes. But we have to see that in order to live that reality. And then finally, we'll become free to begin to give what is really needed in a moment and in a relationship. We can give that big tip. We can give that compliment. We can stop arguing. We can let someone else be wrong or right and let it be okay to not be offended anymore about the little things and just hold relationship so much more important than position. And we can then begin to leave people better than we found them. The only person that we can change is ourselves. That's it. But we can only do that when we're ready to change. Our prayer should be, Lord, make me ready. But be careful when you pray that because becoming ready is not an easy process. It's painful. Stripping away our comfort zones, stripping away our security blankets is painful. But Lord, make me ready so that I can then be free enough to change. And when we're ready, then we can begin the work of taking the beam the ego out of our eye that clouds and limits and separates and become fully aware and fully present. And then we can begin to help others to change themselves, not to change them, but to help them see how they can move forward. And we'll be doing this just as God changes us, not directly. God doesn't violate our free will. God doesn't change us, but God is always there with indefatigable love and connection and presence that draws us in, but only when we're ready. 
And we can do that for the others when we are living in kingdom as Jesus intends. Let's all pray. Father, wow. There is so much here. But through all of the complexity and even all the study that we need to do, we finally get down to a very simple truth. Bring that truth to us forcefully. Reinforce that truth with us. Help us to keep coming back to it. It's as simple as being present. It's as simple as not allowing what we think we know to separate us from whoever or whatever we're with. To just be, to allow ourselves to be, to take joy in the moment, to lean into a moment, even if it seems imperfect, even hurtful, knowing that the only place we'll find you is in this moment. Help us to do that more and more, Lord. Help us to catch ourselves before we do the judgmental thing, to just stop and take a breath and choose a different course. Help us to wake up in our waking moments and realize that we can choose you. We can choose you in each other anytime we want. And thank you for being the perfect model of all this, Lord, and showing us what it looks like and how it works. Thank you for never letting us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.